Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, we are recording this episode on February or January 7th, <laughs> and it will begin nice. airing on January 9th. My name is Reese Robinson. I'm on air with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. Happy New Year again, ladies. Yes, our first show that we are recording after the new year is that right this week has been a whirlwind <laughs> for me yeah personally. yeah, yeah. That's I know. right how's it going everybody it's going all right yesterday was the anniversary of january 6th which we we talked about last week um i were you guys nervous that something was going to happen a little bit Mm-hmm. A little bit, um, just but you know, I didn't think they would let it happen in the same capacity. I can't say mm-hmm. that, but I was a little nervous. I didn't really think about it. Like I had a passing thought, but I I wasn't, you know, I just kind of went about my day. I didn't watch any of the retrospective thing. It just seemed like a lot, and it just a lot of weird. You know, it's like memorializing in a way I thought was a bit inappropriate, but. You know, I just went about my business. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Maybe like hopefully it doesn't become like a yearly thing. But I think everyone was sort of on edge that it like if they didn't maybe overcompensate in that direction, it could become a rallying thing for the people who want to to do that sort of thing again. I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it just seems like a lot of jargon and like with not a lot of answers. And I don't know. It was just. A little weird, oddly chaotic, but mm-hmm. it, I don't know. It was just a strange day. It was just yeah. a strange day. No, but I'm any- happy it's snowing today. It's a beautiful right? snowy day in New York City. I love it when there's snow and sunshine. That's like the perfect winter day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, if you're not driving in it. That's yes, true. You, you need sunglasses. It, so. You need some sunnies to protect yes, your eyes. You need good shoes if you're walking outside, so... Everybody bundle up. All right. So on the docket for today's episode, for local news, we'll be talking about staff shortages at New York City public schools. For our national news segment, we're discussing a story about the Bureau of Prisons allowing prisoners released during the pandemic to stay home and complete their sentences. And then a second story that just came out today about the director of federal prisons resigning. For world news, we'll be talking about a big anti-feminist movement in South Korea. And for good news, we have some news about Brazil shutting down illegal timber operations. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Jasmine, you're up. Um, So the title of this article is um, It's Not Sustainable. NYC public school administrators, teachers struggle with staffing shortages. Um, it was written by Jessica Gould and Max Rivlin Nadler um, for The Gothamist. Um, so I'm going to read pretty much the way this is written, but it's um, been shortened somewhat just for the sake of time. Uh, faced with high absentee rates among students and teachers, principals at public schools across New York City are scrambling to staff classes and keep their doors open. Mark Canizaro, president of the Council of School Supervisors and Administrators, said everyone is making it work whatever way they can, fixing things on the fly, he said in an interview on Wednesday. It's amazing to see people step it up, but it's still not ideal academically or for safety. It's just where we are. 
Cases reported among public school students and staff have increased dramatically in recent days. The most recent Education Department data says 13,810 cases were called in among students and staff on Wednesday. Principals reported nearly 13,000 cases among students and staff on Tuesday, following nearly 14,000 on Monday. Education Department officials emphasize that many of these cases emerged during winter break, and the dramatic increase is also due in part to a policy shift in which the DOE began accepting at-home rapid tests. New York City New York City's Teachers Union, the UFT, the United Federation of Teachers, has not tried to block the schools from being open. President Michael Mulgrew told members in an email over the weekend that he recommended switching to remote learning temporarily to deal with staffing issues, but that Mayor Eric Adams was determined to resume classes in person on Monday. The safest place for a child is in school, Adams said during a Wednesday appearance on CBS This Morning. When little Johnny's not in school, he's not, he's not in his room, in this room, he's in the streets, you know, he doesn't have his mask on. And then you go to those communities where they don't have high speed broadband Wi-Fi, where they can't go online and get the education they need. He added over 100,000 children are homeless. They don't have the same resources. Adams has also repeatedly pointed to data showing students suffered academically and emotionally during the pandemic a sentiment invoked by many public health officials. Studies found that student achievement was down last year and black and brown students suffered the most. The U.S. Surgeon General has warned of a mental health crisis among children, including a 51% increase in suicide attempts among adolescent girls. But some teachers said neither the union nor the city is doing enough to protect school communities against the Omicron surge. On Wednesday afternoon, members of a UFT faction called the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators, or MORE, rallied outside the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. The group wants weekly COVID testing of all students and staff, instead of just the 20% of students who opt into testing now required, as well as better masks for school communities. They are also demanding one week of remote school with childcare for those who need it in order to slow the spread of the virus and establish baseline testing. We are saying we need X, Y, and Z to make schools safe and leadership is not listening to that, said Kim Landman, a teacher, parent, and member of MORE. They just want schools open at any cost. She added that many students at home are suffering from the lack of a remote option, Kids who are quarantining, whose parents aren't comfortable sending them to schools, aren't getting any instruction, and that's not fair. Teachers want to provide that instruction, but we can't do it. Carson Chodos, a Brooklyn teacher who attended the rally, called the situation really chaotic. She and her special education co-teacher have had to split up to cover for colleagues, so we're not even providing special education services because there aren't enough teachers. There's no learning happening right now, she added. We're providing babysitting, bad babysitting. Teachers at two, at two co-located middle schools in Sunset Park held a sick out Tuesday because it wasn't safe, said a teacher who asked not to be identified because she was worried about losing her job. She said the goal was to push the schools to go remote until children were supplied with better masks and more tests. Instead, the education department deployed central office staff and principals combined some classes. 
Some teachers said the city was making the right call. I believe schools should be open right now, said Brooklyn teacher Stephen Simons. We are a great resource for students right now, for parents right now. We're a place of learning, a place of comfort, and a place of compassion, and that's what we need. While attendance has been down in recent days, reaching 71% on Wednesday, compared to pre-pandemic average of 91%, hundreds of thousands of parents continue to send their kids to school. And city officials said that they have had there have been no closures this week because of staffing issues. Um, so for that reason, I'm going to uh, because we are short on time. I'm not going to finish reading out the whole thing, um, but you can read the entire article again on the Gothamist. It's not sustainable. Uh, if you look that up, written by Jessica Gould and Max Rivlin Nadler. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, I know the the Chicago Teachers Union has been in the news a lot because they decided to go remote. Um, but it's uh, it's a frustrating situation. It really is, and all of the the mental health issues that you brought up, like that's it. It's becoming more and more clear to me as time goes. You know, like I think I. At the start of the pandemic, I was like, everyone just stay the fuck home, right? Like, it doesn't matter. It's so dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And, and all of, you know, it is still dangerous and it is still a serious issue. And, and yet the more time that goes on, the more serious that the mental health side effects of, of the isolation is becoming clearer and clearer to me. And, and obviously when related to adolescents as well, um, it's clear to the administrators. It's a very, it's a really tough spot to be in. I agree. Um, and their plan to kind of delay for a week before starting. I know that a lot of colleges have done that as well um, to try to see if the curve, you know, if if the spike goes down after the holidays. But, you know, at this point, we had to anticipate that it was going to get a little worse um, over the holidays. Right. I mean, I think that's the wave now um, since the pandemic started that we need to anticipate during this season that things are not going to be operating as they should be at this point. What I don't like, and I think a lot of, you know, teachers have been demonized for saying that they want to go remote. It's like, I don't think anyone is saying that they want everyone to Mm -hmm. be fully remote forever. You have a lot of people that are saying like, because the surge is so bad at this particular point in time, like these are the things that we want to do to make school safer or like do something like temporarily. And like, I feel like there's all of these things that are being proposed or that are being brought up that we've known from day one would actually help with safety. And those things will be ignored in favor of just, well, let's just pretend that it's 2019. It's like you can't have in-person schooling that's safe. Like if you're not going to work on the ventilation, if you're not like there was another article about the way testing is set up. It's like the same children get pulled out for random testing repeatedly, whereas like 80 percent of the kids are not getting tested at all. Like that's not helpful. You know, it's like, I feel like, you know, teachers are being made out to be like these supervillains that just don't ever, you know, I'm sure they know that, you know, a lot of students do better in person. I'm sure they prefer teaching in person. Teaching online is hard. They're not asking for this, like, to be forever. It's like a stopgap measure to try to, like, make it better. But, you know, the resources they need for the in-person instruction to go ahead, it's just not 
it's not happening. And, you know, that's, I don't think that's acceptable. No. And I don't, I'm not surprised that there's not enough resources for all of that. I mean, there, there's barely enough resources in a non-pandemic times for people, for, you know, ed- public education in a lot of parts of this country to, to progress. I mean, there was like lead in, in the water fountains, you know, that's like, there, there are serious infrastructure issues in education in this country. And to add a pandemic on top of that is just, you know, is just an impossible situation on top of an impossible situation or a situation that, I mean, funding, <laughs> just prioritization in this country in general with the funding and, um, you know, the way, and it's, it's a larger issue, you know, the way that some schools have a surplus of funds and, and many do not. Um, but all these things are tied together. I totally agree. Um, it's not like New York City public schools had enough resources for the students anyway, right? Like that <laughs> that was an issue before the pandemic. So um, I can imagine now the weight of the teacher's shoulders um, is a lot, you know, like they're not just managing their everyday lives, trying to stay well. They're also trying to keep the students um, morale up, their confidence level, um, their behavioral issues that may happen because they're not used to being in groups anymore. I think all of those things are to be considered. And I agree with you that the teacher should not be being made out to like they're some sort of villain because they're trying to protect themselves and their industry. Because, you know, many of them always wanted to do this in their life or whether they fell into that position. I think that they do have a care about how this goes moving forward, how education in this country is given out. Yeah, and I don't I don't like the way that um especially with the new mayor making comments as if, you know, there's there's certain groups that <laughs> whenever it's convenient it's like but what about all the poor and homeless and black and brown students that are not going to have food and stuff because they're not going to school and it's like the fact that the school is being used as a stopgap for all of these massive forms of inequality and like lack that it's in and of itself is horrible it's like the children need homes they don't the fact that like you're promoting keeping schools as being like this in-between space that is responsible for fixing all of these massive social issues it's unacceptable you know and it's like look there's parents that are getting cps called on them like having, you know, child protective services called on them for keeping the children out of school. Who do you think is most hurt by that? You know, white parents that have money or is it those same, you know, poor, homeless, whatever, like vulnerable kids and families that you claim to be caring so much about when it comes to promoting, like forcing everyone to be in person? You know, it's like if you really cared about those issues it wouldn't just be like a rhetorical thing to bring up now like you would be putting your money where your mouth is and funding like those problems so that the school isn't the only place the children can get food or heating or whatever it should not be like that you are absolutely right um being mayor is making tough decisions and not just um you know doing this sort of exclusionary what if what that i think this should be the top one of the top things that is on his agenda because this problem is not going to go away and we definitely need to protect our students as well as our teachers and administrators. I mean, it's really tough with the back and forth, but there has to be a better way to handle this. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Definitely something for us to consider. Um, you know, uh, blessings up for everybody that's going through it right now with all the changes that's happening in the world. I know it's not tough, but we got to hang in there. We will get through it. The first track of today for our first music break is called The Chant and is by Greg Sparrow, Joel Ross and Friends. We'll be right back. Follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule again no spaces no punctuation marks welcome back to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn and now for our national news this is a two-part story the first one comes from the washington post and the title is bureau of prisons can keep inmates in home confinement after coronavirus emergency ends Um, the story is dated back in late december but i think it ties into the second one and the author is uh, david nakamura All right, so I'll just read the article as is before I jump into the second one. The Justice Department ruled 
on Tuesday that the U.S. Bureau of Prisons is not required to re-imprison thousands of federal inmates who were granted home confinement to limit the spread of the coronavirus, even after the federal health emergency ends. The decision reverses a January order issued in the final days of the Trump administration and allows the federal agency to avoid recalling prisoners en masse. The BOP has released more than 36,000 to home confinement since Congress expanded the program at the start of the pandemic to help reduce the spread of coronavirus in its jails. Many of those prisoners were near the end of their sentences and would have been released even without the pandemic, advocates say. Nearly 8,000 are now on home confinement, according to the federal agency, with the rest either having finished their sentences or being sent back to prison for violating rules of the program. Advocates estimate that about 3,000 would be at risk of returning to prison if the Trump-era order is not lifted. Those who remain on home confinement can continue to reintegrate into society, living with loved ones, holding down jobs, and abiding by specific restrictions that govern their release, officials said. When the pandemic health emergency is lifted, the agency should not be required to disrupt the community connections these prisoners have developed. Prison reform advocates have petitioned the Biden administration for months to allow prisoners to remain at home in confinement after the emergency is lifted. All of those released from the jails under the provision were deemed low risk, federal officials said, and many were elderly and in poor health. So far, 262 inmates and seven staffers have died from coronavirus at at BOP-managed facilities, along with 11 inmates who were on home confinement, according to the federal agency. The Justice Department spokesperson, Attorney General Merrick Garland, ordered his staff to examine the issue after he studied the underlying statute. Garland met with several inmates who had been released to home confinement under the pandemic-related CARES Act provision to hear about their experiences. Thousands of people on home confinement have reconnected with their families, have found gainful employment, and followed the rules, Garland said in a statement. In light of today's Office of Legal Counsel opinion, I have directed the department engage in rulemaking process to ensure that the department lives up to the letter and the spirit of the CARES Act. Um, So that is the first part of the story. And again, that's from Washington Post. Now, in a story from today, I just thought this was very interesting as well. Um, This one is from the New York Times. The title of this article, Federal Prisons Director is Resigning After Rocky Tenure. So Michael Carvajal took over the Bureau of Prisons in February of 2020, just as the coronavirus began to sweep through the nation's prisons. I'm sorry, the author of this article is Katie Benner. The head of the Federal Bureau of Prison plans to resign as the agency struggles with issues that have overshadowed his tenure, including employee misconduct, understaffing, and violence. The director, Michael Carvajal, was appointed in February and will step down once a successor in, in place. Anthony Coley, Coley, a Justice Department spokesman, said on Wednesday that Mr. Carvajal's operational experience and intimate knowledge of the Bureau of Prisons, the department's largest component, helped steer it during critical times, including during the historical pandemic. However, his tenure continued to be marked by crises, including the string of inmate deaths, escapes from chronic understaffing. Uh, After the Associated Repress Associated Press reported last month that more than 100 employees of the Bureau of Prisons have been arrested, convicted, or sentenced of crimes in the past three years alone. Senator Richard Durbin, Democrat of Illinois and chairman of the Judiciary Committee, called for Mr. Carvajal to step down. He said, 
His resignation is an opportunity for new reform-minded leadership in the Bureau of Prisons. So that is the two articles. So I I know they are um, a little bit opposing each other, but I do first want to highlight the idea that um, these prisoners were able to stay home, finish their sentences, get reintegrated into society, have the support of their family members. I think that is a great move. Um, If anybody's ever known anyone who's had to serve time and come home, getting acclimated into society is very, very difficult. I mean, you're getting no's at every turn. And sometimes you've been away so long, just adapting to technology and the changes in the world can be really hard. So the fact that these people are able to stay home and finish their sentences, I think that's a great thing. However, that this man is now being told to step down is also something really important because we've reported quite a bit of stories about um, how COVID wrecked the prison system in the past year. Oh, I think that's awesome. I hadn't heard about the that program. It's not really early release, right? It's like early, it's early home, uh, home confinement, I guess. Yeah, it's it's yeah. not early release. They still have to visit, finish their sentences, and there mm. is a set of rules and regulations. So it's almost mm. like parole. Yeah, um, you could say, Stricter but at least parole. it's with their family members. Yeah, yeah. I think that's awesome. I think, uh. We've talked about it on the show before again, like how, you know, in in this country, we the the prison system is not really about rehabilitation in any sense. It's it's sort of like let's, you know, very much most of the time is about let's get these pe- these undesirable people away from, you know, quote, like good society, quote, right? And it's like one and then their lives are almost impossible to pick back up again once they're out. And this this feels closer to that idea that like you know, these are still people who deserve, you know, whatever they've done, they, they need, you know, relearning, rehabilitating, I guess, and and coming out as members of society who, you know, deserve dignity and respect. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's cool. And I am sure like the people who were released weren't necessarily violent. Is that right, Reese? Yeah, I mean, they they were either towards the end of their uh, tenure there, they were older, Mm -hmm. some of them had health conditions. I mean, it varied by state. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, there was a couple of articles when I was looking over, some of them were nonviolent offenders. So things Mm -hmm. like that were put into consideration. Mm -hmm. Um, But I definitely think this is a step in the right direction because, I mean, really, what else are you going to do when jails are already overcrowded and this pandemic is just wiping people Mm -hmm. out? They're not getting tests, resources, anything Mm -hmm. there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I wanted to know was like, what are what was the criteria for how they decided who would be eligible for this and who wouldn't be like, I would be interested to know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting, it varied by state as well. So was this this was a federal, this was in federal prisons that this was happening, at least like a national program for federally run prisons? Yes, it was. Mm, And I will definitely put the article from the post um, up on so you guys can take a look on our social media. Um, And I think it did vary by state, but it did. I just want to go back and just see um, if the article said anything specifically about which ones were released. Mm -hmm. But they were many prisoners near the end of their sentence would have been released without the pandemic anyway. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess they they that was one of the things as well. How much longer you had left on your sentence as well. Mm hmm. I mean, it seemed. Oh yeah, go ahead, Jasmine. Oh no. Yeah, I was. I was just. Yeah. So it's like these are all. It's not people who were in state prison. It's people who were in federal prisons only. Correct. 
Okay, got it. Yeah, I mean, I think state by state, and that's some of the stuff that we covered state by state, they had did different things. Um, some of them, I remember, I think I, I did one of the stories actually where they were releasing um, prisoners of a certain age or with medical conditions. And then I guess it varied throughout the state, but these are f- people who were in federal prison. I mean, it really, it really sounds to me like a great solution to multiple issues, right? Not just the the whole concept of what a jail is for, but again, like what you mentioned, like overcrowding, um, disease issues as well. Um, you know, these things that we talk about, it sounds like a good solution. I'm also curious too, though, how it, how it deals with the issue, like the, the cost factor, like is the prison system still responsible for like feeding someone financially who's on like home I'm just curious. I think that's an that's interesting... a really good question. Yeah, I bet you it probably isn't. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I bet you it probably. But you said isn't. they were working, right? Like they were working yeah, regular a lot jobs. Of, a, a lot of them have been reacclimated to society and ba- you know back with their family, so they probably weren't. They probably at the most were paying for their parole officer or whomever uh-huh, was handling uh-huh. their case. Interesting. It's an it's an interesting situation for sure. Yeah, it makes me think about how. Um, you know how student loans have been on pause all of this time if you have student loans and it's like at a certain point people start to get wise to the fact that well if the government can go this long without us paying it it's clearly not this essential thing that has to happen so like that's a bit like roundabout but i'm like i do think that you know once you start to set some precedents i hope it makes more people think like well you know, people were released or like they, you know, committed a crime or whatever, but like with the correct support, like they're able to go on and just live, you know, a relatively normal life, you know, and like once that happens, I hope that it doesn't like go backwards once the pandemic does eventually end. Like I hope that it continues to, like I hope it sets a precedent for like further action for people to question and, you know, eliminate a lot of aspects of um, imprisonment that we have in this country. Cause it, it really isn't about, um, as much as, you know, the claim is that it's about rehabilitation. So often that's yeah, not no. what's actually happening, you know? Exactly. So. And again, yeah, you know, I agree. and there are, and this is always such a tricky thing too, and not tricky, it's tricky for me to talk about, I guess, cause there's definitely like people who do not deserve, you know, who deserve, the opportunity to rehabilitate and reenter society. And I mean, everyone hypothetically does, but then there are as a true crime fan, there are some people who, when they're released, will just continue um, to uh, commit certain crimes, certain violent crimes. But, um, you know, and, and it seems like those are the people that always get the early release or whatever, you know, the people who, and then everyone, so the people who got arrested for selling marijuana 30 years ago are still stuck in jail. But, um, yeah, but it is, you know, so you just, the criteria for that, again, I think is really interesting to look at. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we'll see how this pans out, right? Because that story obviously was written pre-Omar Khan shutting shit down. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. It sounded like that it had a lot of um, contingency based on the end of the pandemic and stuff like that. Um, but it's good to know that at least those who were already going through the program can remain home. And let's hope that this is the beginning of the reform. I mean, with the resigning of, you know, um, the director of the organization, 
you know, maybe some real reform is happening. Uh, it didn't really give a lot of reason of why he was resigning. It, I'm questionable whether he opposed um, some of this legislation, but I guess we'll see, you know, but I definitely think that this is a good move for some prison reform and how some things are handled. All right, so it's time for our second music break today before we get into the world news and the good news. This song is called Welcome to America and it's by an artist named Lecrae. We'll be right back. Yeah. Uh, uh. I was made in America, land of the free, home of the brave. And right up under your nose, you might see a sex slave being traded. And we'll do anything for the money. Boy, mama might sell her babies. Sell porn, sell pills, anything to pay the bills, anything to bring that face. Gotta scratch that itch, gotta scratch them ticks. Ain't rich, but I might be. And I'ma shoot these flicks, I'ma turn these tricks, anything for a slight fee. Yeah, made in America. Mama told me that I belong here. Had to earn our stripes, had to learn our rights, had to fight for a home here. But I wouldn't know a thing about that. All I know is drugs and rap. I probably could have been some kind of doctor. Instead of holding guns and crap. I was born in the mainland. Great grandpa from a strange land. He was stripped away and given bricks to lay. I guess you could say he a slave hand. But I was made in America. So I don't know a thing about that. All I know is Uncle Sam looking for me working on his corner. So I know I got to pay tax. Getting paid in America. I was raised in America. And this is all I ever known. If I'm wrong, then you better come save me, America. Welcome to 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 America. Man, I die for America. I served my time for America. Got shot, shot back, went to war, got back, and ain't nobody give a jack in America. I could have lost my life, why I lost my wife? I can't even get right in my homeland. Cold sweats, whole text, paranoid, looking out for a threat in my own land. I was trained in America. How they get up in the planes in America? Flew right into the buildings, taking out the buildings. People getting killed in America. And I'm still in America. No, America ain't feeling me. I went to war for this country. Turn around, came home, and you drilling me? When y'all free here, saying you don't want to be here, well, you probably couldn't breathe here if I didn't load a couple magazines here. Y'all just complaining, America. I'm jumping out of military planes from America. Hey, I was made in America. That's why I'm out here saving America. I got a brother in the cemetery now because he wanted y'all safe. And everybody wants the freedom, but nobody want to hear about faith. And we bled for America to keep y'all fed in America. But what's the point of talking? A lot of y'all don't really even care. America. Welcome to 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 America. I wish I lived in America. Wanna raise my kids in America. Heard everybody rich, all I gotta do is run, jump, Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. 
Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have Emily with our world news update. Go for All right. it. All right. Uh, this story comes from a January 1st New York Times article by Koei Sang-hun titled The New Political Cry in South Korea, Out with Man-Haters. After slow gains in women's rights, the country is facing a type of political correctness enforced by young men angry at feminists, saying they undermine opportunity. The article explains, quote, They have shown up whenever women rallied against sexual violence and gender biases in South Korea. Dozens of young men, mostly dressed in black, taunted the protesters, squealing and chanting, thud, thud, to imitate the noise they said the ugly feminist pigs, quote, made when they walked. Out with man-haters, they shouted. Feminism is a mental illness. On the streets, such rallies would be easy to dismiss as the extreme rhetoric of a fringe group. But the anti-feminist sentiments are being amplified online, finding a vast audience that is increasingly imposing its agenda on South Korean society and politics. These male activists have, have targeted anything that smacks of feminism, forcing a university to cancel a lecture by a woman they accused of spreading misandry, uh, they have vilified prominent women, criticizing Anne San, a three-time gold medalist in the Tokyo Olympics, for the, her short haircut. They have threatened businesses with boycotts, prompting companies to pull advertisements with the image of pinching fingers they said ridiculed the size of men's genital of male genitalia. And they have taken aim at the government for promoting a feminist agenda, eliciting promises from rival presidential candidates to reform the country's 20-year-old Ministry of Gender Equality and Family. South Korea is reckoning with a new type of political correctness enforced by angry young men who bristle at any force, any forces they see as undermining opportunity. And feminists, in their mind, are enemy number one. Inequality is one of the most delicate issues in South Korea, a nation with deepening economic uncertainty, uh, fed by runaway housing prices, a lack of jobs, and a widening income gap. We don't hate women, and we don't oppose elevating their rights, said Bay in Q31, the head of Man on Solidarity, uh, one of the country's most active anti-feminist groups. But feminists are a social evil. The group spearheads the street rallies and runs a YouTube channel with 450,000 subscribers. To its members, mem feminists equal man-haters. Its motto once read, till the day all feminists are exterminated. The backlash against feminism in South Korea may seem bewildering. bewildering. South Korea has the highest gender wage gap among the wealthy countries. Less than one-fifth of its national lawmakers are women. Women make up only 5.2% of the board members of publicly listed businesses, compared with 28% in the United States. And yet, most young men in the country argue that, it's, that it is men, not women, in South Korea who feel threatened and marginalized. Among South Korean men in their 20s, nearly 79% said they were victims of serious gender discrimination, according to a poll in May. There is a culture of misogyny in male-dominant online communities, depicting feminists as radical misandrists and spreading fear of feminists, said Kim Joo-hee, 26, a nurse who has organized protests denouncing anti-feminists. The wave of anti-feminism in South Korea shares many of the incendiary taglines with right-wing populist movements in the West that peddle such messages. 
Women who argue for abortion rights are labeled destroyers of family. Feminists are not champions of gender equality, but female supremacists. In South Korea, women and feminists are two of the most common targets of online hate speech, according to the country's National Human Rights Commission. The backlash represents a split from previous generations. Older South Korean men acknowledge benefiting from a patriarchal society that had marginalized women. Decades ago, when South Korea locked everything, lacked everything from food to cash, sons were more likely to be enrolled in higher education. In some families, women were not allowed to eat from the same table as men, and newly born girls were named malja, or last daughter. Sex preference abortions were common. As the country has grown richer, such practices have become a distant memory. Families now date uh, now dote on their daughters. More women attend college than men, and they have more opportunities in the government and elsewhere, though a significant glass ceiling persists. Quote, if older men saw women as needing protection, younger men considered them competitors in, cut, in a cutthroat job market. Anti-feminists often note that men are put at a disadvantage because they have to delay getting jobs to complete their mandatory military service. But many women drop out of the workforce after giving birth, and much of, domestic, much of the domestic duties fall to them. Quote, Yoon Suk-yeol, the candidate of the conservative opposition People Power Party, sided with the anti-feminist movement when he accused the Ministry of Gender Equality uh, of treating men like political sex criminals. He promised harsher penalties for wrongfully accusing men of sex crimes, despite concerns it would discourage women from speaking out. But Mr. Yoon also recruited a prominent 31-year-old, 31-year-old leader of a feminist group as a senior campaign advisor last month, a move intended to assuage worries that his party has alienated young female voters. Quote, it's, it is hard to tell how many young men support the kind of extremely provocative and often theatrical activism championed by groups like Man on Solidarity. Its firebrand leader, Mr. Bay, showed up at a recent feminist rally dressed as the Joker from Batman comics and toting a toy water gun. He followed female protesters around, pretending to, as he put it, kill flies. Uh, tens of thousands of fans have watched his stunts live streamed online, sending in cash donations. During one online talk fest in August, Mr. Bay raised 9 million won, or about $7,580 in three minutes. Women's rights advocates fear that the rise of anti-feminism might stymie or even roll back the hard-won progress South Korea has made in expanding women's rights. In recent decades, they fought to legalize abortion and started one of the most powerful hashtag MeToo campaigns in Asia. So yeah, um, this is a story that I know is very familiar to us in the U.S. It's got smacks of all that incel crap that uh, I think I feel like we've talked about on the show. We must have talked about at least once, um, but it's clearly not uh, solely an American phenomenon. Uh, one thing that really got me is just how violent that rhetoric is, right? Like it's one thing just to feel like, oh, I'm losing my power and I'm going to blame this other group. And and yet, you know, it always seems to fall back on violence when it comes from, you know, the, the young male, the young angry male type, you know? Yeah, the thing about this type of thinking, you know, that, you know, as a woman, it's so disturbing. It's that this could be anywhere <laughs> because, you know, hatred mm -hmm. of women... And, you know, people who, you know, whose 
genders are marginalized just in general like if you're not a cis man Mm-hmm. It's like there's nowhere in the world really where you're safe from this type of animosity and it's very very frightening. Like it's so pervasive and like normalized mm-hmm. and you know treated like some casual it's it's almost like a part of growing up and bonding as a man is mm-hmm. shitting on women in some way women and girls and like mm-hmm. you're trained to do that at an early age and it's just so like that Denver shooting guy, like he was a raging misogynist. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's just so everywhere you look, like there's no safe place really. Um, you know, not that there aren't some places where it's obviously a lot worse as far as like your legal protections, but even in a place where you might assume you are somewhat safe or like there's a woman head of state or whatever, like that still is not going to save you from this like dark sinister like subculture that's getting more and more emboldened it seems like i hate that it's always like because of women right because of women this because of women that because we're supporting women rights then somebody else is affected it's like i don't know i thought it was very interesting how you were talking about the culture in south korea and it's not necessarily the women so much. Can you reiterate that a little bit? That feel oppressed is more so the men. That part of the article was interesting to me. Yeah. So, um, where you talk is it the part where it was the actual numbers, or yeah, you were talking mm-hmm. about that, and you were saying like the number of people who were actually affected or offended. Oh, or right. Oppressed. Well. I mean, it said nearly 79% of the young men in the country answered in a poll that they were victims of serious gender discrimination. 79% of young men. And I, you know, Isn't the polls, that interesting? Polls don't ask literally everyone. Yeah, no, that's that was that's a really high percentage. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. I'm like, wow. I know. Because, it, you know, we know the truth of whether yeah. people are a yeah. part of this poll or not, how things work no matter where you are. But I yeah. thought that was a very interesting fact. Yeah. Yeah. And what also, yeah, also what came up in the article too, I don't think I I quoted it directly, but you know, some people see it as it's, it's related to the economy, right? So it's like, you know, because women are in the workforce more, men are seeing them as their competitors. So that's where this backlash is coming from. Right. But it's like, you know, we can see in those numbers that women are, are still severely underrepresented in like positions of power. Like it's not, it's worse than in the U S and the U S is pretty bad. Right. And it's one of those things where, I think we talked about, like, we were talking about it last week, even Jasmine, where it's like, you know, people like to say, oh, it's, it's because these young men don't have enough or these people don't have enough economic opportunity. Right. Or et cetera. But it's like, it's at the end of the day, it's like, there's a deep rooted, like hatred here of, of the, the people, the group that they're targeting, whether it's about race, whether it's about gender, you know, and you know, yes, it's being scapegoated because X, Y, Z, but it like at the end of the day, like whether or not these people had more or less power probably wouldn't affect this issue. Yeah. And it it just makes me think it's like when people use that as an excuse and, you know, it's like, so what are in your mind, what was like the good old days, like when women couldn't do anything, you know what I'm saying? You know, and it's like, Mm -hmm. so that was better. Yeah. You know, when you couldn't have a credit, you couldn't have a credit card in your own name. Like that Mm -hmm. was better, you know, for women at that time. And you do see a lot of the same stuff, like when it comes to like other marginalized groups, it's like this aggrieved entitlement because mm-hmm. they're so used to being the one that without question would always come out on top. 
And it's like mm-hmm. any little bit of change in that is perceived as like the world is upside down. Mm-hmm. Even though like realistically, like the head of almost every like big company is still like probably a dude, you know? Yeah. It's like we're not, things are nowhere near like being actually equal in really almost anywhere in the world in very few places. Mm-hmm. So this like this belief that it's like women are taking over everything it's like that's not reality Mm -mm. so there's something else that's happening you know or like they would be having a good job being up their wife or something even if they were making better money or whatever like they would still have this inside of them I think that's a great point I definitely agree with you on that interesting story thank you so much uh Emily for that and why don't you go ahead and give us some good news as well Alrighty. Yeah. So, uh, the good news this week, I actually heard about from, and I've mentioned this Instagram account before it's future earth at future earth, um, on Instagram because they do a good news Tuesday post. That's always like a, a roundup of, uh, climate change or environmental things like with the, that are, it's good news about those things. And it always, you know, I'm seeking out those stories to, to counterbalance just like, you know, the, the, <laughs> the daily <laughs> uh fear of the future I feel but um anyway so I got the I heard about the story from there and then I got information for the story from Reuters uh in a December 21st article by Jake Spring titled Brazil shuts illegal timber schemes sheds light on Amazon logging the article explains Brazilian environmental agents this week shut down schemes involving hundreds of companies the agents said were covering up illegal logging in the Amazon rainforest, according to government documents reviewed by Reuters. The operation conducted by the main federal environmental enforcement agency, IBAMA, uh, I-B-A-M-A, provides a rare glimpse into how illegally cut Amazon wood is inserted into legal timber supply chains using shell companies and faking shipments. The enforcement operation is one of the most complete ever conducted by the environmental agency because it caught so many of the people hiding behind or doing business with the shell companies, one Obama agent told Reuters. Obama identified more than 220 companies and 21 logging concessions involved in various schemes disguising the origin of illegal wood, according to the documents seen by Reuters. The environmental agency will place embargoes on the companies this week to prevent them from selling wood and will hand out more than 50 million reyes, reyes, or $8.76 million in fines, the document said. Obama has also passed on the findings to public prosecutors and police for further criminal investigation, the document said. Uh, Quote, the agency can issue administrative penalties like fines and embargoes, but cannot make arrests or issue criminal charges. The companies and people involved can appeal the decisions with Obama. Quote, most of the illegally harvested wood was sold into Brazil's domestic market for a variety of uses, said the Obama agent, on condition of anonymity. The final manufacturer or consumer generally has no way of knowing the wood is illegal as the timber appears to be legitimate in the government system, the agent said. Therefore, they cannot be held liable, the person said. Uh, Quote, selective logging to extract valuable timber is often the first step in deforestation, with the remaining forest then burned to clear land for agriculture. Uh, So there is a caveat to this good news story. Uh, However, quote, the scheme involved more than 102,000 cubic meters of illegally cut wood from Para, Rondonia, and uh, Mato Grosso uh, states. 
That amount represents the harvest of about 97 square kilometers of forest, an area larger than Manhattan, which still pales in comparison to the uh, to more than 13,000 square kilometers of deforestation officially recorded in the 12 months through July. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is a great step. You know, I think we're aware that there's a lot of shady crap that happens, uh, unfortunately, in some of the most um, important natural environments in the world in terms of uh, preventing further climate change or in terms of just, you know, natural habitats. Um, so it's good that the government was able, is, is working towards stopping some of that and to um, to see that there was some success there in, in shutting some of that down. But again, it's, it's only a little bit compared to actual legal practices too. So, you know, just a, a little, a little good news there sprinkled in that someone's uh, someone somewhere cares and is doing, doing the work. Listen, good news is always welcomed around here. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how big or small. Yeah. But thank you so much for that story. Definitely very interesting. And I believe that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on Radio Free Brooklyn app on Spotify or on Spotify. Uh, listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Um, the final track today is dedicated to the late, great Sidney Poitier, who passed away today. I don't know if anybody heard the news, but it's yeah. been scrolling across my TV. Um definitely a dope black leader and dynamic performer. Um, I remember watching him when I was a kid. My grandmother had like a huge fascination with him. Um, and this song um, is by Quincy Jones. It's the title is In the Heat of the Night and it's a live performance. And if you know anything about Sidney Poitier, uh, In the Heat of the Night is one of his award winning roles that he played a detective. Um, and actually that detective, Virgil Tibbs, went on to be played in other uh, shows moving on in his career. So he was uh, an amazing actor and just wanted to give him a little shout out today. All right. Yeah, rest in peace. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you so much for your contribution. Mm-hmm. We will be looking up to the stars at you. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. We'll see you next week, guys. Happy Sunday. Bye. Bye. Like a cold sweat creeping across my body. Yeah, in the heat of the night, I'm feeling motherless.
Big hug now. Thank you. Thank you. Burn it, man. Big hug now. Doesn't he sound great with a big band? Woo! Sounds great anyway, but thanks for the big band. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.